This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Today is Wednesday, January 8th, 2020, and this is Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes, discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. It has been my pleasure for the last three-ish years to co-host Quick to Listen with Mark Galley, our editor-in-chief. So Christianity Today announced Mark's upcoming retirement back in October, and last Friday was his final day. Mark, as many of you are well aware, certainly retired with a bang, sparked quite a conversation, and we may join that conversation here at Click to Listen soon, but not today. Today, I want to introduce you to two people. One of them is actually my interim co-host, Christianity Today CEO and President, Dr. Timothy Dalrymple. Tim took the reins of Christianity Today back in May after a career in academia, media, and business. I'm really looking forward to everyone getting to know him better along with myself. Tim, welcome to the show. It's great to be here with you, Morgan, and I do promise many jokes inspired by Monty Python. Fair enough. The subject of today's podcast, though, is actually not you, though. I think that people, again, will get to know you better just through this interview. But it is Christianity Day's new editor-in-chief, Dr. Daniel Harrell. Tim, you've known Daniel for a really long time. What would you like us to know about your friend? So my wife and I lived in Boston for about eight years. And during that entire time, Daniel was really our pastor at Park Street Church. So we attended an afternoon service that Daniel led. And every Sunday, I was just blown away. Now, Daniel's the the kind of preacher who preaches from a manuscript. Every sermon was so immaculately and carefully written that you felt like you were listening to a piece of literature being read out loud. And so I've tracked with Daniel, just really appreciated the, the pastoral sensibility, depth of engagement with scripture and theological tradition that he brought to his preaching, to his role as he went on from Park Street Church And uh, we'll hear more of this from him later, but he was at Colonial Church in Edina, Minnesota for 10 years. And so when I knew that uh, our brother Mark would be leaving us soon, Daniel was really one of the very first people who came to mind as someone who would be an outstanding editor-in-chief. So I'm really looking forward to people getting to know him better. Hi, Daniel. Hello, Morgan. Hi, Tim. Thank you for those kind words. Generally, when we do these types of shows, I think people expect the three of us to all be in the same place together. But you are actually still in Minnesota. I'm still shivering in Minnesota, actually. A lovely day here. (laughs) But yes, I will be here until the summer when I'm planning to come out and join you all in person. To the illustrious Carol Stream offices. Daniel, we have a bunch of questions for you, but I'm also looking forward to any type of teasing that you want to play, you know, weigh on Tim, as I'm sure he deserves during that time. But maybe we can go a little bit biographical and you can tell us about how you became a Christian. I grew up in the South in the 1960s. So you were a Christian by default. You could only opt out. My earliest memories are life in church 
at the foot of a, a kind and generous preacher and youth pastor and uh, my father, who was a brick mason, getting up every Sunday morning, listening to gospel music, putting on his tie, and out the door we went. It was just part of the the air that we breathed and the water that we drank. Later on, though, as I got older, there were a lot of influences that deepened my faith and gave it some form. Young life was a big thing in high school. I found myself surrounded by mentors and staff workers that helped shape my faith. I'm going to just life. interrupt you and ask, did young life back in the 60s and 70s look the same as young life looks today? And I would guess no, but I'm just curious what it kind of looked like for you. You know, I would guess no, too. I mean, it was set up with, you know, big group once a week and then smaller group Bible studies early in the morning over pancakes. And I think more than anything, just seeing other kids my age gauged in their faith was was really awesome. And, you know, they worked off this model where they really tried to get the cool kids and involved. <laughs> and so suddenly you're like, wow, it's, it's, it's cool to be a Christian? How is that possible? So Young Life was influential for lots of reasons. It was. It was really through Young Life that I ended up engaged in a really powerful campus ministry at the University of North Carolina back in the days. InterVarsity was immense at my university, and it was really there that this personal relationship I had with Jesus that got shaped in Young Life really found its depth as I was surrounded by just tons of thoughtful and passionate people trying to live out their faith on this big secular campus. It was excellent. Do you want to name the secular campus <laughs> that you were? Well, I will. The University of North Carolina. I was there with Michael Jordan. We were very tight. And, <laughs> you know, I started as a psych. I mean, I'm started as a business major, I should say, because I was an editorial cartoonist, was going to go into graphic design, but I was terrible on the business side of things and ended up taking a psychology major, you know, because I, quote, wanted to work with people, unquote. But that led eventually a uh, religion major where one of my main mentors was uh, Grant Wacker, who's a big historian. I know mm-hmm. sort of runs in the CT circles. And- yeah, Grant came on the show after Billy Graham died. Yeah, he he's awesome. So he and along with others were very formative in my, you know, ended up as a pastor and sort of the kind of pastoral work I ended up doing, which was tied to this life of the mind in a way like how is it our thought comes alongside our experience just to to pull us deeper and drive us deeper as as Christians in a, a changing society that we live in. So Daniel, were you a double major then in psychology and religion? Yeah, I was. Double major psychology, religion, you know, which was very doable there. And they kind of worked together. Though the psychology at University of North Carolina at the time was very much tied to a behavioral models. And when I went on and got my PhD in psychology at Boston College, some years later, the shift had kind of moved from those sort of pigeons and rats days to computational models. And then by the time I got there, it really turned into biological models. You have these different formidable experiences, both in education and also in, you know, with regards to ministry that in the, in the sense that you're being ministered to. But when did you first feel yourself a call to ministry? I was at a fraternity party and with some some folks from my uh, InterVarsity small group. And it was just one of these moments, you know, where, you know, I'd been leading the small group. I'd been involved in uh, all kinds of things through uh, InterVarsity. And it just, I mean, it's like, I think I'm going to be, I think I want to be a pastor. And I turned to this friend of mine who's a diplomat in the Foreign Service and asked her what she thought about it. And she thought it was a good idea. So it was that day, actually that next day after that frat party, I went and picked up the religion major. And just started on that track. My fraternity brothers were deeply disappointed. Um, <laughs> I was definitely throwing my life away. But, you know, it's, it's, it's just what I was felt called to do. And so I, I began thinking about next steps. I'd grown up in North Carolina, but as a Boston Red Sox fan. 
we had a, a Red Sox. Convenient um, somehow. I... Yeah, 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 we had a Red Sox farm team in my hometown. So came time to pick a seminary. I decided I'd, I'd try Boston because I'd always wanted to live there. And so I sort of took this call, ended up in Boston. A number of UNC folks, uh, Grant Wacker included, suggested Gordon Conwell, which is where I ended up. Thought I would just be there for a few years, but spent the next 25 years of my life in Boston. I find it fascinating, Daniel, that you had your call to ministry at a frat party, right? Yeah. It's not exactly a tale as old as time. And, and so <laughs> no. it, it makes me wonder, what was it that you were experiencing or observing or feeling at that moment that you think kind of precipitated this sense of call? There were a number of things that, that were, were going on. One, I'd, I'd been in a fraternity since my my sophomore year, which is you know very typical for uh, guys on our our campus. Growing up in the South, I just I knew nothing about things like Wheaton College and Christian colleges. Again, everybody was a Christian. You know, it was just like how Christian were you? You know, my church was the kind growing up where you know the deacons would stand out in the front of the church and smoke before worship. And the question was never you know do you go to church? It was always which church do you go to? So this this idea of secular sacred was was a very blurred line for for good and for ill. So to go to a fraternity party as a Christian was that's what all the Christians would just do. It was, you know, just how drunk you got. I think that that for me, being at that frat party was just part of life, but it was also connected to a, a, a very critical thing that happened while I was at UNC. One of my friends died while I was there, and his name was Sandy Ford. He's a Leighton Ford son, Billy Graham's uh, nephew. When he died, he was dating one of my best friends at the time. And uh, of course, it was just, it was awful and really hard for for us as college students whenever a friend dies. But that had led to uh, a series of things that, that happened where we sort of leveraged the occasion of Sandy's death to start a conversation on campus that actually Billy Graham came to our campus and led this sort of massive event called Reason to Live. And my responsibility as part of an organizing group around this was to do fraternity outreach. I worked with a lot of other fraternity guys just to let them know sort of what was going on in this event. And it just sparked a lot of conversations around life and death and the gospel and Jesus in ways that students don't often have when they're in college. So it's very powerful. And I think all of that kind of together culminated in this sense of love doing this. I feel called to doing this. I care about this and I'm going to devote my life to it. Yeah. I think anyone that's a pastor has to be pretty comfortable talking about the real things in people's lives, right? That's right. Of course, at, at Christianity Today, we have a particular interest in in Billy Graham as a very important part of our legacy and our story. And one of the first things that I wrote about when I came to serve the ministry as president and CEO was an encounter that I had with Billy Graham. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your experience. Doesn't sound as though it was kind of the typical crusade environment, but so he's coming in. His nephew has just passed away, what sounds like quite unexpectedly. And what was what was that like and what was your experience like? Of course, growing up in, in that time, Billy Graham was, was certainly in part of his heyday. And I had gone to one of his movies, I think, as a kid. They had always had an altar call at the end of a movie, which is hard to imagine doing these days. But we did. I remember going down the front of the theater and it's like, here I am and just as I am. And the counselors came out and talked with us. And so by the time I got to the university, Billy Graham was you know, someone everybody knew, every Christian knew. And to know Sandy, of course, in this kind of different context 
and find out that they were related was was kind of fun on the one hand. But then, you know, just to recognize he was just a normal guy and was very much involved in InterVarsity. It was another way of knowing him. And then when he died, I mean, so suddenly and so unexpectedly, he had a, a heart malformity that just took him. Suddenly there was, you know, an opportunity to to have this engagement unexpectedly. And and so Billy Graham stepped up, stepped in and came and was actually participated in some of our organizing meetings and recognized that part of what he was going to be doing was not going to be the the kind of classic crusade. It was held in the the basketball stadium, but was more modest than I think was typical of what he he did. Interestingly, while it was a big event, kind of all that happened afterward was was very different. Instead of some big resurgence in kind of Christian faith on our campus, it ended up just raising more questions than I think it, it answered. And I've done a lot of thinking on that over the years. It just stressed to me how important it was when we're engaging in these kind of life and death conversations that they can't happen in a moment or around a particular speaker, even one as popular and gifted as Billy Graham, but really can only start there. And I think for us, we weren't as prepared for, we spent so much time planning the event that we weren't really set up for what would, what happened afterwards. I think that's part of what, to tie it back to the pastoral ministry piece, I think that's part of what I enjoyed about being a, a pastor was that It was a conversation with a group of people that you got to walk through a lot of life with more than just, you know, a moment in life. So on the one hand, I I deeply appreciated, you know, all that Billy Graham did and was able to do in his, his many years of ministry. But I also recognized how that style has dissipated, I think, in part because we've recognized that the moment in time is is not sufficient for that that deep work that the, the gospel demands on us. I would love you to talk a little bit about after seminary, unless I'm skipping over something really big that happened in seminary, then by all means, you can get into that and about how you ended up at Park Street from there. You know, one of the things that happens, you know, in our lives, if we have a strong youth ministry experience, we want to be youth pastors. If we have a good therapy experience, we want to be counselors. And for me, the youth ministry experience was one where, yeah, I want other kids to have what I had. At Gordon-Conwell, I was uh, tutored by a very gifted professor. Dean Borgman, who's actually still there. He's got to be 100 years old now, but he's still there doing youth ministry. He was great and and sort of set me up to do my first work as, as a, a youth pastor in a small community in New Hampshire, where I led this youth group that ended up being numerically larger than the church itself. It was kind of a, a youth so, group. So what was your like magic skill that you had to attract all these young people in godless New England to come to your youth group? Uh, you know, it's just, you know... Obviously, you know my charisma, past, <laughs> but but it was it was just one of these communities where there was just nothing else going on, and this was you know days before the internet and technology, and these kids just like to gather, and so we created a place for them to gather and use the old young life tricks, and they work, and you know these, these kids these kids showed up, but. You know, I was living in Boston and, you know, the commute didn't make any sense. Dean Borgman had had set me up with a pastor at Park Street, knowing that they were looking themselves for a youth minister. I interviewed for that and really hit it off with a guy who was hiring and, and got that job. And, you know, I was there in the last years of, of a pastor's named Paul Toms, who was Harold Ockengay's successor, for those who are familiar with the Ockengay legacy and his importance to Christianity today. And, but worked with uh, Paul Toms for a few years, and then he retired. And I thought I'd be out the door then too. But uh, his successor, a man named David Fisher, came in and he and I hit it off 
And that was sort of the beginning of the next, you know, 22 years at Park Street where I got to do so many, so many different things. I didn't think I would stay in Boston. I really thought that the the South would pull me back, but I just loved it. People may not know that, that Park Street is really one of the flagship evangelical congregations in Boston. As you mentioned, it's in the downtown. It's right off uh, the red line on the T and the red line stretches out into Cambridge. And so you have a lot of people coming from from Harvard and from MIT. And, and maybe you can just comment a little bit on on the unique dynamics, of kind of the congregational makeup there. Yeah, well, you've got red line and then you've got, of course, the green line too. So you've got Harvard, MIT, you've got Boston right. College, Boston University. Northeast. I mean, there's four other colleges. schools, those other <laughs> lesser schools. Yeah, you've got 43 colleges and universities in the area. And, you know, back when college students went to church, Park Street was really the nexus for a lot of that. Now, I mean, admittedly, a lot of it had to do with trying to meet a young person that perhaps might spend a life with. And, you know, that's part of it, too, the social scene. But at the same time, gosh, during my days there in the late 90s, early 2000s, students just flocked to that place. It was it was really great. In addition to that, you know, you also just had I call them the Ally McBeal days when not only students, but tons of young professionals, much like today, were finding their way to Boston. And church was still a place where, you know, people would, would come first to seek community. And so we saw a ton of those folks too, to get to, you know, speak into their lives and, and hear their troubles and walk alongside in those days. I mean, these are these are people like yourself, Tim, who I've had the, the honor to stay connected with for years since. To have those relationships has not only been rewarding, but so powerful for me and my own challenges in life and struggles. I do like this biographical journey that we're on, but if I am not wrong, it seems like you wrote all your books while you were in Boston. And so I kind of want to take a detour, Daniel, to talk about all of these books that you read, because I think they all have really interesting topics for us to kind of get into. Maybe we can start with your I don't know, maybe this is the most polemical or controversial book, but one of the books that you wrote is called Nature's Witness, How Evolution Can Inspire Faith. So maybe you can tell us about how this book came about. So this book comes about during the time when people like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris, the so-called new atheists, are really given it a conservative Christianity using science as as something of a of a weapon to discredit kind of the claims of religious faith. So many Christians, of course, especially conservative Christians, caught in science narratives that had a lot to do with either discrediting or eschewing evolution or what's commonly known as God in the gaps fallacies, where you credit God with doing things science can't explain, totally forgetting that eventually science figures things out. We're sort of caught in this uh, conflict. And again, growing up in in the South, coming out of a, a church tradition that, that was not expressly evangelical. I mean, I never heard any of these anti-evolution stories. Living in Boston, you know, scientists who were uh, deep professing Christians would, would cringe when you know, science was misused in these ways. And so, you know, on the heels of a lot of these relationships and my own life and conversations, I had uh, entered into a, a conversation. And well, let me add two more things. One was I was also serving on a, a hospital ethics committee. So I was getting a chance to see a lot of applied science. But I also had been invited to be a religious voice at a conference at MIT on genetic technology and society. This was right after Dolly the Sheep got cloned. And I was asked to come in and speak on the ethics of cloning, which I knew nothing about. And <laughs> no I, big I deal. Was, 
weenie pastor over at Park Street, and you know, I get asked this question. You know, does a clone have a soul? And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know a clone. I haven't met a clone. And, and so I, you know, I come up with this, this kind of answer that I thought was brilliant. I was drawing an analogy to the Nicene Creed and trying to make a distinction about, you know, between what's begotten and what's made. And I made total sense for those who, you know, knew the Nicene Creed. But, um, <laughs> which was definitely this, your uh, audience, right? That was everyone. Totally. Was. Oh, gosh. They were just, it was, that room was filled with those people. And, man, this bioethicist, I mean, he just turned red. He was so angry that I was even allowed on stage because, in his mind, religion was fairy tales and had no credence in scientific conversations. And I was just bringing the whole thing down by my presence. Now, that was probably true for other reasons. And fortunately, the Nobel Prize winner stepped up to my defense and says, well, you know, things aren't that cut and dried. And I'm like, yeah, what he said. I mean, I was so embarrassed, A, that I'm like, that's not going to happen again. So I just started to study and work and came alongside so many scientists as I tried to better understand what are the connections between, you know, faith and science, specifically physics and biology. And and, and the book is really the, the fruit of that, where I'm able to, to celebrate scientific discovery as the fingerprint of God. I mean, if, if we believe in a God who is creator, as we do, and this is what creation looks like, then what is that telling us about about God and how can we gauge in the wonder that truly is, from cosmology to quantum particles, the marvel of God's creativity? And we have to remember that like all of the best science grows out of our Christian conviction. I took a group of kids a few years ago in the footsteps of Galileo through Rome all the way to the particle itself. Accelerator at at CERN, and I mean, it's just marvelous what what science is able to do. And in a lot of ways, uh, historically, Christian faith sparked so much of that. But we, you know, we find ourselves these odd places since. But anyway, all of that writing ends up in the book. And this is a place where Tim and I got to reconnect through uh, some work in an organization called BioLogos, started by Francis Collins, who's still the head of the NIH, where uh, they're looking to continue to advance this congregate conversation and help Christians see that science is very reliable at, at showing us what is. And in as much as the heavens declare the glory of God to better understand the world is to have you know better understanding of God. Now there are issues that get raised with that with those discoveries. But even when it comes to evolution, evolution is a is a marvelous is a, a marvelous description of how reality emerges. And while it presents problems for traditional Christianity, they aren't insurmountable. They're just theological challenges that I think a lot of theologians have done some beautiful work with. So can't be scared of science. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. 
this is really one of the things that I loved about Park Street Church, that it was such an interesting meeting place of tradition and innovation. On the one hand, you had this church that I believe you and I were both still there when it celebrated its 200th anniversary, which right, a lot right. of different places in the world, that's that's a young church. But here in the United States, that's that's a fairly old church. Been around for over two centuries. And yet, partly, I think, because of the intellectual ferment and the constant arrival and departure of undergraduate students and graduate students and so forth, there is a lot of experimentation. And I, I think that's something that you were able to do a lot of. And, and it resulted not only, I'd say, in this book, but also in the, in the third book that we'll come to in just a moment. But yeah, why don't you go ahead and tell us about how to be perfect? I'll tell you about the book, not exactly how to be perfect, though Mm. um, I have plenty to say about that too. What happened is I I was reading a a book by an author named A.J. Jacobs about a year of living biblically. And it was just this funny, humorous take on what would happen if you, you know, you took the Bible so seriously as to do what it says. And for somebody who's like, yeah, I think I'm kind of trying to do that. What would it look like if a group of people who actually believe this stuff tried it? Which is when you ask it like that, you're like, aren't we supposed to be doing that all the time? One of the things that, you know, obviously Christian you know, never know what to do with or Old Testament laws. And so, you know, I'm like, ah, you know, I've never preached Leviticus. What would that be like? And But after reading this book, I thought, well, instead of just, you know, preaching it straight up, what if I got a group of people together and we tried to live it and use those experiences as kind of sermon fodder? This happened right as kind of Facebook was enter- entering its ascendancy. And so we did all kinds of stuff with video and stories and sharing, which seems quaint now, but at the time it was super cutting edge. And well, what I did is I recruited 21 people to pledge to live according to the book of Leviticus for 30 days. And of course, my Jewish friends were like, really, 30 days? I've been doing this my whole life plus 30 days. <laughs> but people stepped up and, you know, the rule was you could figure out your herm- your hermeneutic, you know, the grid through which you wanted to interpret this on your own. I mean, you know, some people just did it straight up. Other people, you know, did it kind of interpreted through a New Testament lens. Other people said, well, the stuff that Jesus did, I'll do the stuff that Jesus didn't do. So anyway, a lot of different ways that people took it. And it was, it was really fun. I mean, we had young, old, you know, executives, students, parents. We had, you know, men, women, black, white, Asian. We had everybody, you know, participating. And it was just a fun tribe that we put together. Well, so I did the sermon series, really enjoyed it. I'm like, you know, I I should write something about this. And so I write an article for Christianity Today. It gets published as a feature article. We need to know more about your experiment, though. Like, what great lengths did you go to carry out the laws of God? So each of us, again, was responsible for, for doing our thing. So like there was this one guy who was from Ireland and he was back in Ireland and his parents actually lived on a cattle farm. So he had all kinds of things he was doing to try to bless bulls and not sacrifice bulls, but, you know, bless them. And so there's these hilarious videos with him encountering the, the various animals on his farm. For my part, I just had this whole issue of, you know, loving my neighbor which, of course, is the one thing, the one verse we know from Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. But for me, it, it all was around a, a neighbor who was putting his trash in my trash can, which in Boston has got tight for space. Everybody has their own trash thing. But, you know, And if you fill up my trash can, where am I going to put my trash? Because I don't get but one can, according to the city. And so I'm having a real issue with this guy. But do I lovingly let him use my trash can? Or do I go and confront him? And you know, what's loving my neighbor look like in all of this stuff? 
funny part of the story is that at Park Street in the time where we also had just a lot of just awesome working stiffs. And one guy we had was a covering drug addict that had had worked for years for Whitey Bulger. Now, if you know Boston and South Boston or have seen Martin Scorsese's The Departed, Whitey Bulger was this notorious gangster murderer in South Boston for years. But this guy, his name was Paulie, had left left that gang, was coming to Park Street, and he's listening to my Leviticus sermons, and I'm telling the story about, you know, what do I do with my neighbor? How do I love my neighbor who's putting his trash in my can? And Paulie comes up after the service. He's like, yo, you know, I, I got some people. I can take care of that if you want me to. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is just an illustration, Paul. We had a we had a woman who built a tabernacle in her Boston apartment and tried to carry out a few, not sacrifices, but offerings. I mean, you need to remember that the Levitical sacrifices were mostly just like grilling food to eat because you, know, you ate most of the sacrifices. And so people did all kinds of cooking things in their apartments. We had all sorts of stuff around women and purity and menstrual cycles, which was kind of interesting to participate in. We had a variety of stuff that, that people were experimenting around food and clothing because of the prohibitions against mixing fabrics and mixing seeds and the kinds of food you would eat in kosher laws. And so all kinds of funny stuff around bacon. Uh, this one guy spent a whole afternoon at a Jewish butcher, learning how to butcher food, and on and on and on. And then, you know, Sabbath keeping, that was immense. A number of of people on the team spent time with Jewish friends doing Sabbath and just had their eyes open to the power of Sabbath because people don't realize that for devout Jews, you know, Sabbath is like a Thanksgiving every week. And the work you have to do just in preparation to do Sabbath, you know, in the Easter story, when we hear about the day of preparation. There's a lot of work that goes to prepare to rest. And just the importance of rest was was eye-opening. Learned a lot. And it was fun to get to write about it, the context of these experiences and these 21 individuals who each had their own experience that they would describe and then interact with each other about. I'm sure many of the themes that are present there will come out in your work. All right. So you also wrote a book called Wisdom of the Saint and Near Saints, Christian Inspiration from Ambrose to Zwingli. First of all, very ambitious project. Lots of saints out there. Tell us about a couple of your favorite saints that you got to hang out with while researching and writing the book. I took a lot of liberty on the saints thing because, well, let me back up and say that this had started again as a sermon series, really based on this conviction that is as Christians, our theology and faith is is always constructed on the shoulders of those who've come before us. And so knowing the personalities and, and heroes of our traditions helps us to better understand, you know, the core convictions we hold. And I thought, what better way to think about these people than alphabetically? So I started this 20-year sermon series with letter A. I was going to get all the way to Z, but I became editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, so I didn't get a chance to finish. <laughs> wow. Um, so for my last sermon at, at Colonial Church in Edina, I skipped ahead. I'd only gotten up to T, so I skipped ahead to Z and did a sermon on Nicholas Zwingli, who was a, a benefactor of a group of separatist Christians in Bavaria known as the Moravians. And the Moravians, these 18th century pietists, we know mostly these days, especially if you live in the South, uh, by virtue of their beeswax candles and sugar cakes at Christmas. Their, their big story is about being caught up in a time of revival that was so fervent, they didn't want to leave church. And so what they did was they they ordered in food. You know, being Bavaria, they ordered in probably beer and bratwurst and the like. But these days, the remembrance of that time is celebrated in something called a Moravian love feast. 
feast and you go to these at Christmas time. And right in the middle of the sermon, these folks come out with coffee and cake. And so it's like eating popcorn at a movie. You get these refreshments in the middle of the sermon, all to commemorate this time of fervent revival. I wrote about some of the, the classic heroes of our tradition, you know, church fathers such as Basil and Augustine and Anselm and Aquinas, but also, you know, lesser known people that folks wouldn't heard about uh, before, though who are equally famous like Tertullian and others. I, I added some some more contemporary figures. I think off the top of my head here, I think I put uh, T.S. Eliot in there. I did Caravaggio. I'm a big fan of the arts and the, the role that art plays, especially in pre-literate societies and semi-literate societies. And so Caravaggio, who wasn't much of a Christian, but boy, could he paint the the testimony of how beauty arises out of places we wouldn't imagine. Caravaggio was known for brawling in the streets, right? Yes, and yet yes, some yes, of the yes. great paintings that he produced were essentially in recompense for the crimes that he had committed. Oh, absolutely. And the church itself had had no uh, problem with, with paying him to do these things. And I, I just love that testimony that, that, that God uses us in our worst to create real, real beauty. So. Well, there's a part of this story that that I, that I particularly love, where he ends up on the island of Malta. If, if the listeners are familiar with the, you have the Knights Templar and the Knights Hospitallers, where the two kind of great military orders in the Middle Ages. And the Hospitallers, I believe it was the Hospitallers, who ended up on the island of Malta and ended up becoming the Knights of Malta. So they still exist. But at the time that Caravaggio went there, he was fleeing from someone who wanted to kill him because he had killed somebody in a brawl. And he ends up there and as part of getting the protection of the knights, he has to create this painting and it becomes one of the best known paintings of Caravaggio. That's very impressive, Tim. You sort of carry that little tidbit around in case somebody just pops. You never know when you might be asked about the Knights of Malta. Very impressive. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I tried to use artists and poets and, you know, as well as theologians just to talk about the various ways that our faith is, has come to be. And Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. All of those books are still available for people to read and learn more about you through all of them. I want to kind of move back to talking about your faith journey and your vocation. And maybe you could talk about how you ended up in the Midwest. To, I like to tell people I'm a Southerner by birth, a New Englander by choice, and now a Midwesterner by the will of God. Wow, that <laughs> I, seems uh, like a passive-aggressive way to refer to God. Or <laughs> the, the Midwest. Um, <laughs> no, you know, I think, you know, I pastors have shelf lives. You know, we, we serve at the behest. I'm a congregationalist, kind of hardcore descendant of the Puritans, and we serve not at the behest of a denomination or a bishop, but at the behest of the congregations we serve. And we have seasons, you know. My season at Park Street was a long and beautiful season, uh, several iterations, but, you know, there just came a time that it was time for something different and, and new, and, and I was I was ready for that. I, f- I found it was harder to transition than maybe it had been in in previous eras of of church pastors for whatever reason. It could be because of my evolution book, who knows. It was just tough to find a new place to go. And so I ended up through a a search firm making a connection with a colonial church in Edina, Minnesota, which was not really the location that I was looking to move to, but the fit was fabulous. You know, not only their fascination with all things Pilgrim and Puritan and colonial, uh, thereby the the name. And if you ever visit Colonial Church, it's modeled after a, a church building in West Barnstable, Massachusetts. 
of all places. It's You're really funny. just bringing their dreams to life when you showed up. I mean, I tell you, it is it is like a pilgrim Disneyland out here. But um, <laughs> they, uh, one of the things they do, and it's kind of funny, but every Thanksgiving, you know, they hold a Thanksgiving service, honor that that pilgrim heritage. But the funny thing about it is that we all dress up like pilgrims, okay? It's something that's been going on at Colonial for a, a long time and kind of do it tongue-in-cheek. It's definitely not something you would you know, lead with if you were trying to start a revival at a congregation. I know, let's dress up like this. Does that mean that you wear like the giant belt buckle and the hat? All of it. We buckle up. We buck. We I want to see pictures. I will send pictures. They, it is, it is really kind of fun. And I, you know, I ended up doing some research because they were doing this thing, but I'm like, are you sure you're doing this really historically? So I did some research and found out, of course, you know, that women are not allowed to participate in the service and had to sit on another side. So we did that. I did learn, I didn't know this, that the, the Native Americans who came to the thir- first Thanksgiving likely were uh, naked. So we, um, you know, we were so like, so you oh, don't dress as the Native Americans. We, I, I'm not doing that. No, not doing that. But that was an interesting thing to discover. Uh, but I also found out that in, in Puritan churches, the only adornment, and there's like congregational meetings that go on about this fervently, but the one adornment is this elaborate cushion that they would make for the Bible. And so their Bibles would sit on these pulpits and platforms, always on this beautifully adorned fabric cushion. So we made one of those, and we now have a beautifully adorned pilgrim cushion for our Bible. But all that stuff was was a lot of fun. You know, can I, have- I, I just say that I like honestly cannot imagine any New Englanders having a reenactment of Thanksgiving. <laughs> so, 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 so I said to them, Morgan, seriously, exactly. So I said to them, look, nobody in New England does this. Well, maybe at Plymouth Plantation, which is kind of this theme park down in Plymouth, but nobody does this. And this deacon goes, well, you know, in Nova Scotia, there's a lot of things they do they don't do in Scotland anymore either. And I was like, for you, good for you. So we keep doing it. Um, <laughs> So we have at our church a piece. It's the only congregational church in America that has a reliquary. And we have a relic of the Mayflower. Now, is it truly the Mayflower? Who cares? But that's what we have. We have a relic of the Mayflower and a piece of Plymouth Rock. Seriously? I'm telling you, this is a very special place. Where are you again? Edina, <laughs> Minnesota. Edina, Minnesota. And they are just some of the most gorgeous, wonderful, faithful awesome people, which I'll maybe say a little bit about in a minute. All right. So you've hinted at some of the, I don't know, interesting characteristics of your congregation, but how else would you describe them? And what are some of the key issues that you guys have had to work through together while you've been there? Unlike Boston, which was a very transient or Park Street, very transient congregation, given their context, you know, Minnesota is a place where so many people, if they leave, they come back to family runs deep here, community ties are or tight folks who grew up in Minnesota, they just love it here. It's a lot like coming from the the South. You know, it's a place you return to to get married, to raise your family, to enjoy life. Education is greatly valued as industry and innovation. And Minnesota uh, continues to be you know at the top of states when it comes to charitable giving and social entrepreneurship. It's a it's a wonderful congregation. One of the highlights, and we have some very creative business people here that have, have managed to make it so our, our church is financially flush. And so we have used some of that money and in creative ways. Probably the, the one I'm most proud of was we took a half a million dollars and created a contest 
for uh, social entrepreneurs to uh, compete for those funds to advance or accelerate their entrepreneurial enterprise. So we were able to launch or accelerate 11 social enterprises around the world, enterprises all led by people 35 years old and younger. We have a woman who runs a, a jewelry business called Farinita, and she hires women all around the globe who have been victims of sexual abuse, and she gives them work. Some of her best work are Ethiopian women who take uh, spent bullet casings and craft them into jewelry, and they get sold. It's it's a very cool thing. We have a, another guy locally who has created a food program for schools where he feeds kids who don't have access to, to food over the weekends. He started with one school and now is in over 100 by virtue of our ability to come alongside. We've got a group from Iowa State University who created a solar dehydrator to help farmers in sub-Saharan Africa keep their crops longer by dehydrating the produce that they create. We've got a, a group who came up with uh, some technology to help kids who can't use their arms because of congenital birth defects. And they created some, they call magic arms that allow them to, to use their arms. And we were able to, to fund that. We funded a college for students with cognitive disabilities. And we these kids can graduate high school and come to get a college experience with a university nearby due to some funding. And we not only did funding, but also did coaching of these folks. We provided you know, free HR, legal, insurance advice, and of course, networking given the, the capacities that a lot of the business folks in our congregation have. It, it, was, it was marvelous work, very rewarding. And, and we've just, and the, the church just voted last month to give away another million dollars. And so they're looking to, to launch a similar kind of thing again, you know, where they're able to get it out the door and get it into the the hands of social enterprise. And that's because they don't have to pay you for 2020, right? I know. I just, I freed up a ton of money. Thank you for picking up that salary though, Tim. I really <laughs> As we close, just circle back to hearing more about your faith. And I'm wondering about what formidable life experiences have you been through that have impacted how you understand your faith? Most poignantly at this point in my life is my wife died this past Easter Sunday. She uh, had past Easter on a Sunday. She had a pancreas cancer that she was diagnosed in February and died two months later. It's been awful, but she was a, a woman of, of immense and, and deep faith who died so, suffered and died so beautifully in ways that I want to do too. It, uh, you know, she, she grew up a missionary kid in Angola, actually met Billy and Ruth Graham when she was a student in North Carolina. Ruth Graham had a real heart for missionary kids, and they invited her over for lunch one day. My wife Dawn went on to go to seminary herself, became a, an editor at a small publishing house in Massachusetts. And then we married, had years together at Park Street, and then came out to Minnesota and had our daughter, Violet. She was uh, doing some writing and, and seeking to get published herself when she got sick. And, uh, you know, died so, so fast, but again, so, so beautifully. But, you know, in the midst of all of this, you know, not only do I, I, won't, I don't want to say I learn because I, you know, as a pastor, when we think about death and life and new life, I mean, this is what we preach about and what, you know, we're, we're honored to come alongside. But I think to experience it in this way and to see a church step up like Colonial Church did, it, it it just underscored, you know, the power of the gospel and what matters most. You just you just recognize that, you know, all that we say and preach and hope for that that, you know, finds its focus on Easter and that is 
it's true and it, it, it makes sense and, and gives us the power and the, the strength and the hope that, that we need, need to, to live the lives that we have because life is so short, so quick and so, so tenuous that to get caught up in so many of the things we get caught up in and, and let those things rise to the surface is a real betrayal of the beautiful, deep and good lives we could be living, <laughs> you know, if, if we would just recalibrate our, our priorities. This is why I think, you know, CT and worship and all of these ways that we continue to call people to put first things first is, is so critical because at the end of the day, you know, well, I think it was David Brooks who wrote, you know, is the stuff that gets said at your funeral is not the stuff that's on your resume. It's the kind of person you were and the values you held and the way you lived your life in those moments that matter. And we just got to keep coming back to that. And so... Yeah, well, it's a, it's a permanent imprint, and a big part of this next season of my life is is devoted to her legacy and her love for words and theology and for Christ and, you know, wanting to live that well for her, for my daughter, and for myself. Thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah. Yeah, Daniel. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think I can't think of a better way to, to wrap up the this podcast than with those reflections. I completely agree with Tim. It's a great way for us to just sit with everything that you were saying. And I really appreciate you sharing that with us for people that have thoughts about this interview. Hopefully exciting thoughts. There's lots of excitement about having you here, Daniel, and we're looking forward to you being here. You guys can send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter. We are at CT Podcast. Now is the time we sh- we call it precious moments, and everyone gets to share something that has brought them joy. Tim, I'm sure there's many things that have recently brought you joy. Will you share one of them with us? You know, Daniel referred to to his daughter. I'll refer to my my eldest daughter, and this is the kind of girl she told me once that she wants to go to the Olympics, compete in every event, win the gold medal in every event, and then keep going back. <laughs> every four years, winning everything until everybody else just gives up. That's that's kind of her personality in a nutshell. So she is a, you know, just a robust personality, eager to take over the world. And yet we adopted a little girl about a year and a half ago. Had the opportunity over the last week to do this. Watching the way in which our youngest daughter brings out the softer, more nurturing side mm of our elder daughter is really, really remarkable. Compassion and kindness come very naturally to our middle daughter, but to see this side of our elder daughter is uh, really fantastic. So that that's brought me joy over the last week. Do you think she'd actually be like willing to share some of her gold medals with her youngest sister? <laughs> <laughs> she might. With her middle sister, I'm not so sure, but with the younger one, yes. Generally how those things go. Tim, are you on social media? I am. I'm on uh, Facebook. Well, I... I for public purposes, yes, mostly yes, use yes, Facebook yes. and Twitter. Where can people find you on those places? Daniel. If you search on my name, it's a rare enough name that you'll you'll find me. I will post in the show notes Tim's Twitter handle. Daniel, do you want to go? I will. Tim, you know, think, speaking of your, your name, you know, I, I bike, to, bike to work and there's this Dalrymple Road. Over the years, you know, I've used that kind of as a spark to think and pray about you and how how oh. coincidental right that oh, there you are, we are you know i didn't know how much you needed my prayers but i'm learning um <laughs> my precious moment yeah you know we all go back to our kids and so i'll have i have if i could have two morgan they'll, they'll both be brief one was you know my daughter is, is sort of entering adolescence and of course we were fighting about something at the end of it i said take her thing and she said dad you're right <gasps> I mean, 
what that was so huh. precious so precious that was just so precious and you know i was able to respond i know it was very sweet uh, <laughs> that, that's definitely a sweet way to respond to you're yeah, right it was, yeah it was a real connection for us but secondly and, and, and this is silly but uh, obviously a, a testimony of american culture so the the minnesota vikings upset the new orleans saints this weekend i'm a new england patriots fan and of course very sad that our team lost, but hey, we had a good run. But oh, well. I marvel, I marvel at the power sport has on the attitude of people. Everyone is was so happy on Monday. I mean, the, I mean, Midwesterners are generally happy anyway, but exceedingly so. You know, from the the plumber who came in to unclog my drain to the folks at the post office to the grocery store cashiers, just the delight and beaming purpleness of that Vikings win was just so sweet to behold. What is your social media handle for Twitter? At Daniel Harold, Daniel was taken, so I did D A N L like Daniel Boone, you know. So. <laughs> Daniel Harrell. And you have a website too. Do you want to tell people where that is? I do. I do. It's uh, just DanielHarrell.com or DanielMHarrell.com. We also published your first Christianity Today piece about Epiphany. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. Just yesterday. And we will also link to that in the show notes. It's beautiful. I highly recommend that everyone get a chance to read this. My precious moment is when the 49ers beat the Vikings on Sunday. (laughs) This upcoming Sunday. That's a preemptive precious moment. Uh, It's not my real precious moment. I mean, I want the 49ers to win. I think they will win. But I, you know, living with a bunch of Vikings fans, because many of them have fled to the warmer lands of Chicago. I know it would make a lot of people happy if that happens. My precious moment was probably over New Year's on New Year's Day. This might have even been my precious moment last year around this time. I spent time with my friends who are in their 70s and extremely full of life and we had a great dinner of gnocchi and cream sauce and chocolate cake and they live really close to Lake Michigan. We went on a beautiful winter walk. There's like a bird sanctuary that's out there too and the sun was setting. It was a great way to start the new year so I was very thankful for that. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to the magazine, which you can do that by going to orderct.com slash podcast. Or if you want to give and support our ministry that way, that is possible at morect.com slash podcast. You can get this podcast on Spotify or Overcast or Apple Podcasts, wherever you want to go. We are there. Also, when you rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, we truly appreciate it. It is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The transcript is made possible by Bumi Ashola, and we will see you all next week. Happy New Year. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.